What is happening, everybody? Welcome to Off the Rails, a recovery podcast dedicated to ending the stigma of addiction through open discussion on all things recovery related. My name is Mark, and with me always are Dave and Jared. Today we have two very special guests. And uh, Jared, take it away. Yeah, we're pretty excited today. When I first got out of rehab and we started this podcast, my fiance actually said, said we should look into getting Joe Collette on. Um, we're both from Kingston. So now we got Joe on and her husband, Chris, which is an awesome bonus. So we're very excited to hear their stories and hear about their journey. So guys, as I was mentioning before, um, we normally have our guests come on and share their stories with addiction and recovery. So uh, today's going to be pretty special. We have two of you guys and uh, we'd like to hear both of your guys' story and then kind of how you guys got to know each other and met and uh, basically whatever you guys feel that you want to share, take it away. And uh, thank you guys again for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. So guys, where are you guys from? Um, so I'm from Kingston. I was born in Kitchener. Uh, I, I spent a, a fair bit of time in Kingston as I was growing up. Um, and between the ages of like six and 12, uh, my family traveled quite a bit. We lived down in the States and in Central America uh, before we eventually kind of came back to the Kingston area. I also spent uh, about four and a half years out west in British Columbia before again coming back to Kingston. Uh, where I spent another couple of years, and uh, now I've been in St. Catharines for almost three. And myself, um, I was born in St. Catharines, Ontario, um, lived there until I was uh, about 18 or 19. I moved all over the place. I was in New Zealand. I was in the Caribbean. I was in the States, um, came back to Toronto for a little while, and then eventually ended up back in St. Catharines. So very similar to Joe you know, came back to the place that we were born. Beautiful. Well, well-traveled. Yeah. Love it. So guys, um, I guess we could start. Um, how was like family life growing up? Joe, do you want to start and then kind of bounce back and forth? <clears throat> yeah, for sure. Um, I had a, a bit of an atypical childhood. I have a, a younger brother, an older sister. Um, we were all homeschooled up until we hit high school. So um, I mentioned that we traveled around quite a bit as a family, and uh, that was um, uh, a great experience. Really interesting to, to see the world, and um, my parents were doing some like uh, uh, service work abroad, uh, so we got to see all different kinds of poverty and wealth and, and different ways that, that people live um, all over the world. But uh, along with that came a lot of instability, and uh, my parents also had some mental health issues and definite rifts in their relationship that uh, really kind of spilled over into our home life. And another um, aspect of, of being homeschooled was that we ended up fairly isolated in our, um, I guess, family dynamic. So I didn't see a lot of how other families interacted. Um, so I grew up fairly, yeah, fairly isolated, I guess, just this kind of like closed off circle of my two parents and my two siblings. Um, and I would say the environment was, was, was tense for sure. Um, lots of, uh, eventually my, my parents ended up splitting. And um, before that time, there was lots of kind of fa family violence um, and, uh, and conflict within the home that made it a little bit of a um, tense place to grow up. 
Yeah. And for myself, um, growing up, I, I was from a family where one side of the family was like a business family. The other side of the family was like a hardworking kind of like blue collar uh, type family, both sides, um, the heavy drinkers. It's not for me to say if they're alcoholic or not, but from what I saw, the signs were there. Um, I grew up in a kind of, I would say, watching my parents and aunts and uncles um, drinking a lot. There was always arguments. There was, you know, sometimes some, some violence. Um, my household itself was very, um, like I call it a, like a don't ask, don't tell kind of household. Um, I was taught from as long as I like from as early as I can remember that what goes on be like behind closed doors stays there is, you know, kind of the idea that make it look good for everybody else. But what happens here within the family, we don't talk about outside of these doors. You know, my mom uh, suffered a great deal with her mental health. My dad was all over the place. He was, um, you know, he was like a fun dad kind of guy. He was traveling a lot for business. So he was in the States a lot. Um, he'd always bring me home things. He was a, you know, his side of the family was the business side. So he was, he'd buy me material things. Um, my mom was at home for a lot of it. And uh, it, it was, it was quite tumultuous with her. She, I never knew which version of my mom I was going to get. So I felt like, you know, my household was kind of a cold place. And I felt like I was always walking on eggshells, like the emotion, the emotional side of my childhood was very touchy. And um, I didn't feel that I could talk to either of my parents about anything that was actually going on with me. Um, I was always judged or criticized pretty hard, um, especially by my mother. Um, and, you know, so I, I ended up being a very anxious kid. I was a very, um, you know, I kept to myself. I, I would make friends, but I had a hard time keeping friends. I didn't want to bring anybody home. Uh, you know, friends of mine wouldn't come to my house for a sleepover, really, because I didn't know what was going to happen. And I didn't want to put myself in kind of that place or put them in that place. So I would always I would often go to other friends and, um, you know, other friends houses and spend time with them and something I really noticed. And, I, you know, I, I didn't have any reference of like what a household was supposed to feel like. I just thought that I lived in a normal household. But when I would go visit other people, um, I realized that there was a warmth um, in the household and um, a cohesive unit that really worked well together. Um, they shared about their day. They shared about their feelings, their emotions. It was very open and honest. Um, and the more time I spent at friend's house, the more comfortable I felt with those families. So I felt like I had kind of like surrogate families within my friends, within my friend group, I would go and spend time and go, you know, I would love going for dinner at another place because, you know, it was, it felt warm and it felt, you know, I felt welcome where I, I, I don't want to say I didn't feel welcome at my house, but I was very on edge in my house at all times. It was a, it was a very verbally, emotionally, and, you know, sometimes physically abusive atmosphere at times. Chris, I really, uh, I really relate to that, man. Um, do you find that like not having that like emotional support at home, it kind of led you to like bottling, bottling up your emotions and kind of not being able to process them correctly? A hundred percent. You know, like I, like I mentioned before that don't ask, don't tell kind of motto that, that was carried through my childhood that told me that, you know, anything that I felt shame or remorse or embarrassment around, I was to keep that to myself and not share it because I had to keep 
keep up opti- uh, optics or, you know, I had to keep it um, looking good for the outside world. So guys, what did it look like without, uh, you know, spending too much time from, you know, when you first started using when it was maybe fun or whatnot to, uh, you know, a breaking point or, uh, you know, needing to, you know, get sober. So for me, having uh, so little exposure to like the outside world growing up um, and from a very young age, having this uh, just like underlying feeling that something wasn't quite right with my family dynamic. Um, it, uh, it, it led me to um, seek something out there. Um, I didn't necessarily know that it was drugs or alcohol when I was quite a bit younger. I just, for example, knew that um, I had to be like away from my family dynamic, away from the house. Like Chris mentioned, I would start to try and spend as much time as I could with other families um, and then kind of like cherish the warmth that I could feel there. But then as I got older and got to the age where I started to understand that drugs and alcohol were um, available, that was around the time that I, I started high school. It was just like the the floodgates burst, um, and I was I was suddenly uh, going to high school after being homeschooled for the first fourteen years of my life, um, and kind of plunged into a social dynamic that I had I had no experience with prior, um, and I knew I didn't really fit in with with a lot of the the people there, so I kind of gravitated towards. The ones that were more like the the art ca- the outcast or like the creative type, and along with that came smoking weed, you know, uh, trying out different things here and there. Um, and I hated smoking weed. <laughs> uh, I didn't like anything about it, but I I kept doing it because there was just something that brought me back to uh, wanting to be accepted with the 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 group that um, I felt like I could fit into. Uh, the best um, and having that sense of of belonging when I was with that group of people was what spurred me to then continue trying different substances and once I became um, more intrigued and more interested in trying different things drinking um, I quickly found that there wasn't anything else that um, lifted the weight off of my shoulders and kind of alleviated that underlying constant um like stress and like walking on eggshells feeling that uh I I had been experiencing for for quite a lot of my life um so high school I just started to you know party and experiment a little bit um I was only in high school for about a year and a half and uh after I dropped out the the drug and alcohol use became a lot heavier I started using intravenously uh, a little bit, and then that escalated more and more um, after I left Kingston and went out west. Um, and the drug changed from like you know um, alcohol and weed to harder drugs, opiates, um, cocaine, anything I could get my hands on, basically. Um, and along with the drugs and alcohol came uh, this constant um, relationship to the people that I would be using with. Um, At one point it was just a a friend group or like, you know, your people that you do that with. And then eventually uh, it was like uh, an ex-boyfriend who was also an addict. And 
being with him, it, it really um, basically put like gasoline on the fire when you have two people that are so troubled and, and, and struggling so much and, um, and don't have the necessary tools to kind of dig themselves out of that pit. Yeah. So I spent, I spent uh, about five years in, in very heavy drug use uh, before I got clean. Um, and when I did get clean, I uh, had about another five years before I actually started my recovery in terms of looking at why I had done the things I had done, why I had fell so deep into addiction so quickly, um, and how I could positively change my life past just being abstinent. Joe, were you, when you had the five years clean, but you weren't in the recovery process, um, was it like dry knuckle sober? Or yeah, did you go to meetings or anything? Or was it just? Um, I didn't. Uh, I had this um, impression that I, for some reason, didn't need it. I had I had this um, misunderstanding about what uh, the meetings were. I had this this like picture in my head of like a group of people that I didn't feel like I I belonged with, and now I know how wrong I was with that um, with interpretation. But um, I I didn't uh, I didn't see a lot of people or have a lot of people in my life that were um, talking about their sobriety. Um, and I certainly wasn't talking about my sobriety. I had just, um, initially just stopped, uh, using drugs. And then, um, in a period of about three months, uh, just quickly realized that I, I couldn't drink or smoke either. Um, because one thing would lead to another. Um, so yeah, I was definitely doing it without, any sort of assistance. Um, I had I had tried to to bring out my past and talk about my uh, addiction to um, a couple of different people, um, and I had been met with kind of like disgust and disdain instead of support. Uh, I was just obviously talking to the wrong people, um, but because of that, it kind of just caused me to 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 just like shove it all into a little box and um, decide that I wanted to ignore that. That part of my life and and move forward instead of addressing it um and really acknowledging what i had been through i meant to say white knuckle by the way too not dry knuckle. dry knuckle <laughs> <laughs> dry knuckles are usually white anyways <laughs> <laughs> that's funny uh, chris how about yourself man yeah, for me, um, so when I was about seven years old, um, I had uh, like a <clears throat> some sexual trauma uh, that happened with a, a caregiver of mine. And um, that was the moment, I think, that changed everything for me. I was already, like I mentioned earlier, that, you know, I was anxious and a little bit, um, you know, I was, I was scared. I was small. I was, I was, I had all the... I had a whole bunch of things going on that I wasn't quite sure of myself or confident to begin with. But then when this, when this sexual trauma happened to me, um, I got very, very confused. And, um, that was the first time that I experienced the want to, um, to escape my reality, you know, um, up until that point, it wasn't really like, I hadn't really thought about it, but 
after that, I was, I found myself like seeking, you know, even at that early age, seeking kind of more chaotic things. Like I started the music I listened to was, was like more chaotic. The people I was kind of surrounding myself with were kind of more of the bad kids. Uh, I was getting to, you know, more trouble than I had in the past um, because I was looking for like some kind of a, an escape or something to get my mind off of what happened and the confusion around, you know, I, I didn't know I was seven years old. So when I first found alcohol, I was about 13 years old. And, um, you know, I, I went to a party and I wasn't really invited to a lot of parties back then. Um, I went to one and I was offered a drink and um, I drank it. You know, I did. I, I must have taken the drink in like two goes. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't shy about drinking, but I did notice that like as soon as I had that first drink, everything, all my emotions just like let go. Um, I finally felt like a sense of relief that I was searching for and wasn't able to find anywhere else. So that night uh, was the first night that I actually got drunk. First night I blacked out um, and I have never known what drinking or using was any differently than that before. Like I, I was an alcoholic drinker before I could even ease my way into it, I guess. Um, but what I did find about it is that the next morning I woke up, I had a whole bunch of questions. What happened? Where am I? Who are these people? But I woke up. And I had friends around me that were laughing and joking and giving, you know, giving me attention that I hadn't received from friends before. Um, you know, there were stories about me um, that, you know, people were they thought were funny. And I didn't care if it was like embarrassing or not at that time. It was just attention. I was seeking that acceptance that I wasn't receiving anywhere else. So, um, you know, uh, I had a little bit of attention from the girls, there were older girls there that were like, you know, they were, they were giving me a bit, a bit of attention that of course I hadn't received that all before. Um, so to me, you know, I felt like I found my place in life. You know, this is, this is, this gave me all the checked all the boxes for me. I was able to um, escape my, my emotions. I was able to be, you know, I would say be myself, but be who I wanted to be, but couldn't, actually be without the assistance of a substance um and the acceptance was a huge thing i mean i was always searching for um a place in life i wasn't a sports player i wasn't a team guy i wasn't you know smaller i wasn't coordinated i was not um you know like a popular kid and then i found alcohol and i i had all those things that i was searching for that you know other people around me were getting from healthy things like sports and you know, teams and that kind of thing. Uh, so when I did find that, I ran with it. I thought like, this is it for me. I found my place. This is my group. Um, you know, they introduced me, they, they brought me to another party the next weekend. And my, my Monday to Friday for, changed from being, you know, a small, scared, insecure kid to fantasizing about the next weekend. You know, what party I was going to go to, what I could get into, how much I could drink, what other stuff was going to be there that I could try because, you know, I try smoking weed. I try like a hit of acid. I tried mushrooms. I try all these things and they kept bringing me more and more attention. So I was like, in my mind, I was thriving there because I was getting that, that attention and acceptance um, from different groups of friends. And I was like, I felt like I was spreading my wings. I had like friend groups all over the city and it was, uh, you know, I was going into high school and it was really, really um, 
you know, before, before it was bad, it was where I felt the most at home. It, it checked, like I said, it checked all the boxes for me. Um, you know, by the time I was 17, I was a daily cocaine user. Um, by 18, I was using intravenously. Um, I, I noticed that um, pretty quickly after I started partying pretty heavily, all those friends that were laughing and joking and like wanting to be at me to be at the next party or like, you know, kind of um, bringing me bringing me around kind of stopped calling. And like when I walked into a party, it wasn't that same feeling of like, yes, he's here. It was like, oh, he's here again, <laughs> you know, and kind of um, I noticed the 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 mood shifting around me. Um and I realized people, people kind of had enough of my shit. Like they, they were not entertained by me anymore. It wasn't funny. Um, people were getting more serious about going to college, university, jobs, whatever. And I was still acting like, you know, a wild child that like I, did, I had no care in the world. And, you know, quite honestly, like I, I was destructive to myself, to others around me. I was taking advantage of just about anybody I could to get what I wanted. I learned I would say like the the um, art of manipulation quite early in life. Um, so I was able to get what I wanted when I wanted. Um, and I didn't see any problem with it. I didn't see that as selfish, self-seeking behavior or like, you know, I didn't care who was in my way. I just bulldozed through life, not worrying about who got hurt or who was affected. Um, and, you know, I tried a, a few different things. I tried like the the geographical cure, you know, I went out to New Zealand for a bit. I went down to the Cayman Islands. I was living for about a year. Um, and everywhere I went, I like the saying goes, right? I brought myself and I brought my problems. And, you know, I I always thought that the problem was my environment, my friends, uh, you know, somebody else's. It was somebody else's fault. It was never my fault that I fucked up. It was always, you know, oh, they did this first. So that's why I did. it was always an excuse. Um and I didn't see it. I just, I, my eyes were closed to it. I was kind of blinded to the fact that I was bringing myself around and I, you know, really I was just carrying my problem wherever I went. And uh, I noticed patterns, but I didn't, I didn't notice them enough or I didn't care enough to change my behavior as a result of these patterns, you know, people warming up to me and then kind of telling me to get lost warming up to me, telling me, okay, we've had enough of your shit. Um, and uh yeah, it went on like that for for a bunch of years. Um, you know, uh, it was it was with with you know little little stints of sobriety kind of peppered in into the to the to the years of of abuse and and use. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess we'll get to that part eventually. But um, you know, that's how it that's kind of how it started for me. I just had a real quick question on that with with regards to you know when you said your friends you know, didn't want to put up with your shit anymore. Was that at the time, did you just sort of like, whatever, like, I'm just going to go hang out with someone else. Or is that something you, you figured out later on while reflecting back kind of on like, Oh, maybe I was uh destructive. They didn't want me around or at the time where you just kind of, you know what I mean? Just kind of like, whatever, these guys are doing their own thing. Now I want to do my, I still want to party. No, my attitude at the time was there's something wrong with them. If they don't like yeah. me, I'm fucking yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like truly that's, that was the, that was the selfish, like way my brain worked and okay, cool. If they don't want to hang out with me, I got different friend groups and I would find that, I mean, I don't know if this is the right thing to say, but like 
my groups of friends, like the 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 things that they were into and the kind of like the social acceptance of the groups I was in became lower and lower. Do you know what I mean? So like when a certain group wouldn't hang out with me, I'd go to a lower group or I'd go to younger people and hang out with younger people because, you know, I was a 20 year old acting like, you know, a, a, a crazed 15 year old that just tried alcohol for his first time. Um, so I would go hang out with people that were still in high school partying like idiots because to them, it was like, you know, I, I was I was fun still to my friend groups. My peers were, were like, OK, I, we're we're moving on. We're in college We're you know, we want to get jobs. We want to be productive. And, you know, that was high school. Um, but, yeah, I always just I didn't think. No, I didn't think it was my problem. I thought it was their problem, which is, I mean, certainly not the way I view it today. <laughs> but yeah. Oh, was there that like turning point where you were like, you know what, it's me and I got to figure it out? Or how did that kind of go? Later in life. So when I was 22 years old, I was working in a, in a machine shop here in St. Catharines. I'd moved around a bunch, came back to St. Catharines. Um, I worked at this machine, machine shop um, building like car parts and I worked like a, a night shift. So I was able to party. I go in, set up my machine, party all night in the parking lot with the guys, you know, no management was around, um, until eight o'clock the next morning we got off at seven. So it didn't matter. We, it was for, for an alcoholic and an addict like myself, it was a dream job. It paid well. And I got to party all night and then we'd carry on somewhere else. But something I noticed, um, and this is this is kind of the I think for me, this person is responsible for changing and saving my life. Um, it, I noticed this guy at the machine shop. Um, he worked day shifts. So he would come in at seven as I was getting off and he'd always sit at like the end of this corridor kind of staring at me and he'd have his arms crossed. And he was this big uh, biker looking dude with a big beard and tattoos all over him. And I thought like honestly i couldn't figure out why he was staring at me i always thought what did i say to this guy like you know drunken stupor on my way out did i piss him off have i lipped off to him does he have a problem with me and um i couldn't i couldn't figure it out but he was looking at me with um this very distinct look and it's kind of the look that a father would give to a son when he kind of disapproved of his behavior and um and I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. And one day he came up to me kind of out of the blue and sort of cornered me. And I thought, okay, I'm about to get my ass kicked. And um, he said, kid, I've been watching you. And um, I just want to tell you that when you get sick and tired of being sick and tired, give me a call. I can help. And he handed me a piece of paper with his name and his number on it. And I had no idea what he meant. Um, I took it. I was grateful that I didn't get my ass kicked. I put it in my wallet and it stayed in there for about three months until you know, one day I was in a bar um, with, again, like no friends. Dealers weren't picking up my phone calls because I was into them for too much. Uh, I couldn't pay my bar tab. I was running up, like I'd been sitting in this bar all day. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought I was going to have to dash out of there or something like that. And I was flipping through my wallet looking for like a an old credit card or something that I may have like stolen off somebody or or I don't know, just to just to, you know, make it just to cover my my bar tab because it was like it was hefty and his number was just there so i was like okay fuck nobody else is picking up my call i'm gonna call this guy his name was terry so i went to like back then it was a pay phone um 
went to a payphone. I think I like stole a quarter out of the bartender's tip jar to make a call or something. And um, I called this guy and I said, Hey man, um, it's Chris from work. You said that when I got sick and tired of being sick and tired, you'd be able to help me. And I think I'm pretty sick and tired of being sick and tired. And, you know, I always say this with this guy. I truly just wanted him to come and pay my bar tab. That's what I really wanted. I wasn't looking for a solution to my problem. I wasn't looking for, um, you know, what he ended up doing, which was a 12 step call. Um, and so he said, you know, okay, stay there. I'll be there in 10 minutes. I told him where I was. He drove down. Um, he did pay my bar tab, but conditionally he said, I'll pay your bar tab. If you come across the street to the donut shop, I'll buy you a sandwich and a coffee and you got to sit and listen to me talk. And he told me his story. He was in recovery for 20 years at the time. He told me what it was like for him going through his years of addiction, what happened, how he changed and what he's like today. And at the end of it, he said, you know, what, how does that sound to you? Did, you know, is that something that you'd like? And I said, yeah, it sounds like you've made a change. Your life sounds pretty awesome. And you got to be kidding me that you can, you cannot feel like this. Like I truly didn't know that people didn't live this way. I was so tunnel vision to this addict lifestyle. Um, so he brought me to my first meeting the next night and uh, it was terrifying. I walked into the room. I didn't identify with anyone. I was by far the youngest person. I couldn't figure out why these people were like laughing and joking. And I thought it was ridiculous. Like they're smiling and happy. And like, how can you be so happy? You're sober, you know? And, and they were wonderful, friendly, you know, people that just wanted to shake my hand and help me in life. And I couldn't accept that because I didn't, I hadn't known anyone like that. So I went through the motions, you know, like I went to meetings with him for about four weeks. Um, I didn't, I mean, I, he, he said he could be my temporary sponsor. I didn't buy a book. I didn't go through the steps. I judged everyone that was in the room. Um, I didn't identify with any of the stories. I kept saying like, no, that hasn't happened to me. I'm not like that. And, you know, every time I would tell this guy, he'd say that just hasn't happened to you yet. You're not like that yet. You will be if you keep doing what you're doing. Um, and I was way smarter than him at 22 years old as a drunk, a drug addict. Right. So I decided that I knew better. And I said, thanks for the help. I felt good. You know, like if I was four, four weeks or five weeks clean. And I thought, oh, like I've done AA. I'm like, I'm graduated AA. I've, I've got, so I can do that. No problem. I'll just go back to drinking like a normal person and like cut the drugs out. Simple. Um, and of course you guys all know how that goes. Um, for me, it was, it was plenty more years of, of use and abuse. And um, for me, what I used to do um, is use the rooms of recovery or the detoxes or whatever as kind of my little refuge uh, when things got too bad. So if I got in trouble with the cops, if work was pissed off at me, if I was, um, you know, if I was dating a girl who was upset with my, my behavior and my actions, I said, no, 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 I can take care of this. Don't worry. I'll go get help. And I knew where to go. So I kept dipping my toes into the rooms of recovery. And every time I went there, I remembered the stuff he said to me. And I, you know, I look at the slogans on the wall and I'm like, God, these are ridiculous. No, that doesn't change life for anybody. This is just words. That's nonsense and i had all the you know all the things that most people say when they go into a 12-step meeting you know it's a cult it's this it's that you know i'm not i'm too young i'm not ready i'm 
not as I'm not as bad as these people. And um, as the years went by, his statement of you're just not that way yet became more true and more true and more true until it was absolutely true. And it got worse for me. Um, but as I was going through my years of addiction, like I, I was, I lived in addiction for 17 years. Um, I didn't finally get sober until I was 32 years old. I was using the rooms, um, thinking that, okay, I'm using these rooms to kind of like stave off the, the, the pressure that I'm getting from outside people or police or whatever, but I didn't realize it was making an impact on me. So, um, and, and I just thought, I'll, I'll just sit here. I just got to sit here for an hour and take up a seat. And um, so all those times, you know, little, it was like little seeds were being planted, I guess. Um, and then, you know, my last few years of addiction um, were really, really dark. It was very, very um, sad. You know, I became, I, I, I was drinking behind closed doors all the time I was using, I was, hardly showing up to work. I was taking advantage of just about everyone and everything I could. Um, I tried committing suicide three times and I woke up one day uh, after partying for about three days straight. Um, and it was the beginning of 2011. And I just, I had partied so hard. I drank so much and ingested so many drugs and I couldn't get messed up. It was just like, I was sober and I realized like, fuck my medicine is not working that relief that i that 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 substances or those substances that i use for you know the that relief i need uh, from myself they're just not working anymore so i woke up the next day and i thought i can't live this way anymore um and my initial objective that morning was to commit suicide and i sat in my garage with a pen and a piece of paper and i wrote out you know ways that i could commit suicide. And I worked for the fire department at that time. And I'd seen a lot of suicides. I had, um, you know, my mom had attempted that as a, as a kid that I had, I had been witness to. And I didn't like the idea of it, but I just felt like I had no way out. And I was trying to find a way that I could do it that would be the least painful and the easiest for somebody to like, not find me. I wanted to jump over the falls because we don't usually find those bodies. And I, and, you know, I live close there and I worked in Niagara Falls. And at some point in that morning, as I was writing that list, I realized, I, I don't know that this is like my, my epiphany moment, but something hit me and it was like, like I got punched in the face with every emotion I've ever had, every real emotion I've ever had. And I got like literally like flashbacks of like the slogans on the wall and the smiling faces in the meetings and the, you know, all this, all these like, you know, people being in the rooms laughing and joking and seeing like eyes that weren't bloodshot and black and like, you know, and, and I was like, Oh my God, I don't have to kill myself. I can, I can go back to those rooms and actually surrender myself to that. Then that was the moment for me. And so I, I looked up the first meeting. It was a CA meeting. Um, I walked in there. It was the same room that I had gone into like all over those years, just like, using the rooms basically and like i said i thought i was using the rooms but really it was working just in a very lengthy process um everything started to make sense to me and i i broke down and i i cried i bawled my eyes out at my first meeting the first guy that shook my hand i just didn't let go of it and i said like i was about to kill myself 
just hours ago. And this is the only place that I can go. I need you to teach me how to live. And, um, and, and I kind of joke about this all the time, like in, in like true alcoholic fashion, I made the whole meeting about me. It was like a speak, it was a, it was a, um, a discussion meeting and I made it like the Chris house speakers meeting. I just like blabbed my whole story. And these people were so kind to me. They must've seen, they'd seen me come in these rooms, you know, for years, come in, go out, come in, go out. And, and they must've thought, well, he's finally at that point. We see it in him. He's, he's finally ready to surrender. And this seems real. So they let me ramble on about myself and they, they shared stories about themselves. Every person in the room gave me their number. Um, and that to me, gave me that exact same feeling as I had after I had that first night of drinking, that community um, acceptance, like I belong here and, and I don't belong out there anymore. And then I was ready to finally just say, that's it. I can throw the towel in on it. I don't, I don't need to live that way any longer. So guys, how was recovery looking now? Uh, Joe, you mentioned you had that five years and then you started your recovery. How, uh, how, was the change and uh can you kind of explain what you meant by that yeah for sure um so i was 20 uh when i first got clean and sober um the the years before that when i was in active addiction uh i wasn't ever holding down um uh i guess like a real job you could say I was often homeless. I didn't, I didn't have a very stable uh, lifestyle. I was traveling around a lot. Um, kind of just like bumming around in, in British Columbia and, and uh, some of the Western provinces. So, and, and I had had some things happen then, like just like co- compounding trauma, like some sexual violence, um, being uh, arrested for possession and trafficking just like things that kind of kept like piling on top of each other I was in a, a pretty um, abusive relationship and and all those things um, kind of just made it feel like I was becoming more and more trapped where I was um, and during that time like I knew I at some point had to make some sort of shift to change something about my life uh, in order to, to not feel the way that I was feeling. I wasn't happy. I was, I was miserable. I was constantly like looking over my shoulder, um, scared of, of something, whether it was, uh, the person I was in the relationship with or something that I had done that was coming back to bite me in the ass. Um, but I didn't necessarily know that that change was getting sober. Um, so I tried a couple different things. Like I, I would, um, try to try to like get a job uh, like a, an actual job make some money hold on to that job try to get uh, a, a steady place to live hold on to that and I was never able to actually make these things last for longer than a couple months um and I I tried to uh kind of like very weakly like stop stop using a couple times and it was only like it was it was very short periods of time before it, the the thought just kind of like left my head and eventually uh i got to a point where the relationship i was in was getting uh increasingly more dangerous to be in um and i just knew that i needed to leave i was i was 
really, really unhappy. Um, I didn't like who I was becoming or who I, I, I was. Um, I was doing things that kind of like went against the grain of, of uh, how I wanted to, to see myself. Um, and I do give, uh, give my parents credit for this because uh, they did, al although my childhood was really turbulent and um, had a lot of kind of um, disruptive things in it, they did instill um, this like baseline sense of values. Uh, and I was like, like their mark was here and I was like way, way below that. Um, and I, I knew I needed to make a drastic change if I was going to be able to uh, move forward in any way. Um, and, and more than anything, I was just scared of staying where I was. So I was out in BC uh, and I decided one day I, I just like packed up all the stuff I had, which was very little, put it in a backpack and hitchhiked back to uh, Kingston, Ontario. <laughs> um, and over, over that trip, um, came off of a lot of the stuff that I was on. It was a, a pretty um, excruciating uh, trip to make back. Um, and I didn't talk to too many people when I, when I did uh, kind of like settle, settle back down um, in Kingston. I started living with a friend of mine there. And that, that first stretch of dry or white knuckling it, either or, um, <laughs> was, was, um, it was, it was tough in the sense that I felt like I needed to um, hide that part of myself. Um, I was very ashamed of it and I didn't feel uh, or know of any place where I could go to talk about it or any people that I could relate to. I, I knew a ton of people, but they were all using or partying. So if ever the topic came up, it wasn't one that shifted towards um, like self-improvement or sobriety. It was one that was like, oh, fuck, like just come hang out and we'll get fucked up. So I, I cut those people out. I knew I knew enough to do that, but I I I just didn't uh, know what options were out there. So um, the addiction kind of switched from from substances to people. Um, I met my now ex husband uh, very very shortly after I came back to to Kingston, and he had just uh, stopped drinking a couple months before we met. Um, same situation, not going to meetings, not talking to anyone, very stubborn and, and self-reliant. Um, and so we met and it was, it was just a very like uh, codependent and um, uh, I, I don't know how to say it, but like it, it was trapping for both of us. Neither of us were able to move forward because we didn't have the tools. And so we were just kind of, um, hanging on for dear life to this, uh, like addiction to the relationship, I guess, where we had, uh, both shifted, uh, our focus. Um, I started, uh, getting into fitness as well. I really enjoyed starting to be like extremely diligent about, uh, food intake and started to learn that like moving my body felt good. Um, I started going to the gym and running a bit. Um, and I relied really heavily on that, uh, for, 
kind of just like getting rid of um, pent up emotions or uh, frustrations. Um, so so that that worked okay to keep me from using. Um, but the quality of my life, although it changed in a lot of aspects in terms of not being homeless, I could hold a job. Um, I could appear on the outside to be like a little bit more put together. I wasn't on like a street corner anymore. Um, all those things had changed a little bit and then they looked different from the outside, but on the inside, I was still really, really unhappy and um, still looking for an escape and um, something to, to take, me, take me away from myself. And eventually, uh, I, as, as those years kind of stretched on, I started to, to look a little bit further to see what sort of um, help was out there. I started looking into therapy. Um, I did go to therapy, uh, but it wasn't addictions focused. And eventually, um, after I ended my, my relationship with my ex-husband, it was a, a big turning point in my life where I was like, okay, like, obviously, you know, I made the, the right choice to stop using, like, that's a good box to check, but there's probably like a list of like a hundred more things that I need to look at here. And, um, because even though my life looks so much better from the outside on the inside, I'm still, I'm still hurting. I'm, I'm still struggling. And if I don't do something to change that now, I'm, I'm, going to take some steps backwards. Yeah. So a big step there was, was just ending that relationship and starting to focus on myself a bit more. Um, and, uh, then, uh, shortly after that I met Chris and very early in our conversation, it obviously came up that, that we were both in recovery. Um, I had, I think maybe five years at that point, uh, he had about a year and a half more than me. And he asked me the same question that, that you did. Oh, like, have you ever had uh, any support? Like, have you gone to meetings? Um, like, how did you do that? Would it like, how have you changed your life? And I didn't have any sort of answer for him. <laughs> and, um, and that made me kind of just uh, take, take a step back and, and um realized that there really was like quite a bit more work to do. Yeah, he, so Chris took me to uh, an AA meeting as well. A couple, a couple months after we started dating, a friend of his um, had a uh, celebration. Um, and it was the first AA meeting that I had been to in um, like ever. And it was funny he like introduced me to a bunch of people he knew and he was like oh hey this is joe um you know she's been clean for for five years never been to an aa meeting and everyone was just like so shocked and and surprised um and uh he he might not even know it but that meeting was was incredibly powerful for me i was there my son was there as well um ezra and uh we were we were there to listen to his his friend kind of speak at a celebration and it was the first time that I had been in a room full of um, other addicts and uh, up until that point I had all these things that I knew like I knew I did a lot of drugs and they fucked up my life I knew I was 
you know, uh, um, bad enough user that I was using, you know, hard drugs and intravenously and every day. And those things were, had been stopping me from, from progressing in my life. Um, and I knew how hard it had been to, to stop and get out of that, but, uh, I, I didn't necessarily think of myself as an addict. Um, until I heard the people speaking in the room and everyone was like, hey, I'm so-and-so, I'm an addict. And then they would continue on with a story or a share or something that was incredibly relatable. And I went from thinking of this um, idea of the addict as being something other than myself to looking at a room full of 40 people all identifying as, as being an addict sharing similar stories that that I could totally relate to and and um it was a really powerful moment for me to know a I'm not alone in this and it's this is like I'm not special like this is this is not um just a me problem this is like something that hundreds and thousands of people all across the world go through and b I'm an addict (laughs) Um, and that changed my perspective on a lot and really made me dive deeper into recovery.